0: In many ways, photography defines how we see history. There are certain images that are seared into our national collective memory that seem to encapsulate a major historical event, maybe even an entire historical era. Dorothy Lang's famous photograph, Migrant Mother, seems to capture the suffering that millions experienced during the Great Depression. Then there's Alfred Eisenstadt's famous image of a sailor kissing a total stranger. In Times Square to celebrate the end of World War II, a photo that captures the sheer joy across the world after history's worst war. Some of the most famous photos of history were planned, and many others were not. They were fleeting moments of sheer whimsy captured, like catching lightning in a bottle. Photos also define how we see historical figures, especially presidents. So much of how we see our presidents comes from these images. For some presidents, the camera has been kind, conveying the exact image they wanted to portray. For others, it's been a nuisance, even damaging their historical reputations. In this episode, we will cover the history of presidents and their ongoing struggle with
1: the camera. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis.
0: Much of how we remember history is based on a visual element photos and paintings, and presidents know that. We often remember presidents through the images they have left from their time in office. That's why the White House has a dedicated Office of Photography and hires the best photographers out there. Today's guest studies the role photography plays in public life, especially in the presidency. She is Professor Kara Finnegan. She is the Associate Head of the Department of Communication at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She's the author of Photographic Presidents, Making History from Daguerreotype to Digital, which will be released May 18th, 2021, so it's literally hot off the presses. Professor Finnegan, thank you for joining us. My wife and I actually just did a cross-country trip, and we stayed one night at Champaign, and I wish we could have stayed longer and gotten to know the campus.
2: Oh, that's fun. Yeah. In um, non-pandemic times, we could have had you over for a drink or something.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I would have loved that. So my first question is the basic question of how did you get interested in photography and the impact it has on public life and on presidents?
2: I started out... Definitely more on the history photography side as opposed to the presidency side. Um, but I'm a communication professor, and one of the big areas in our field is political communication and presidential communication. So um, I like to say that I hang out a lot with people who study the presidency, and probably some of that rubbed off on me. About 15 years ago, I started working on a project on... Um, trying to figure out how to write about the way viewers experienced photographs in previous eras. So today, if I want to ask you what your experience is of a photograph, I can interview you. You can tell me. I can talk to you. But obviously, that doesn't work when people are dead. So I was trying to figure out what are ways I can find evidence for how people experienced photographs in different time periods. And that led me to uh, a kind of fun project on a particular photograph of Abraham Lincoln. Um, It's actually a daguerreotype, which is one of the first types of photography to become popular in the United States. And this daguerreotype was produced in the 1840s of a very young beardless Abraham Lincoln, but it didn't come to light until 1895 when Uh, Lincoln's son, Robert Lincoln, made it available to a reporter for McClure's magazine, and they published a version of it in McClure's. And what was interesting about it, uh, other than the fact that it was for 1895, a new picture of Lincoln, was that people wrote letters to the magazine saying all kinds of stuff about what they thought this photograph said about Lincoln. They said things like, This photograph of Lincoln proves that the Civil War was just which is, you know, maybe kind of a leap we wouldn't necessarily think of looking at a portrait that way. But what it did was it told me that people really engage photographs of presidents with all this other stuff um, on their mind. And that eventually led me to think a little bit more about the role of presidents in the context of the history of photography. It really wasn't until Obama took office and, as you said, started Um, putting photographs that were being made in the White House uh, on a a social media platform known as Flickr. They started doing that. And so they were really circulating their photographs in real time. And I got interested in that. And I started working with my students on that question. And that's when I realized that nobody had really written a kind of full history of the president's relationships uh, to photography across its full history. So the very short answer uh, to supplement my very long answer is I decided to write the book that wasn't out there yet.
0: Hmm, That's fascinating. And if I recall the photo of Lincoln that you're mentioning, is it the one that usually pops up as the earliest photo of Lincoln that we have? Because I know there's one of him from the 1840s where it's him and there's an accompanying photo with his wife, Mary Todd. Is it one where he's skinny and beardless? And I think he's uh, holding his finger kind of like this. Do you know what I'm talking about?
2: <laughs> yeah, 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 that's it. Yeah. And so it's that's an image that's owned now by the Library of Congress. And you can go search for it online. Um, yeah, he's very awkward seeming. He is, you know, wearing a suit that... I guess if you know 1840s fashion isn't super fashionable, it's more of what a kind of rough frontier guy might wear. Um, His hair is combed, and often Lincoln's hair wasn't combed in photographs, in fact. Um, But yeah, so that Lincoln, if you compare it to the bearded Lincoln that people of the late 19th century would have been more familiar with, was really shocking to people. Uh, This was not a guy they'd seen before.
0: It's kind of like when like a photo of a political figure pops up when they were in like high school and suddenly they they show the photo from now and then you see them with bell bottoms or sideburns from the 70s and you think oh my gosh you can't picture so-and-so like that I would imagine it's like the same thing
2: yeah it's like the awkward teenage phase yeah
0: right right yeah so that's interesting because that photo is in so many Lincoln biographies But it isn't really spoken of in terms of the impact it has when people saw the photos in the 1890s and thought, wow, this isn't the bearded Lincoln that we're so familiar with.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: So as someone who studies photography and photographs specifically, can you give me a little bit of an idea of how you would analyze a historical photograph? And basically, how as a professor of the subject, as a scholar, do you look at these photographs differently than everyone else?
2: I think I would do a couple of things. Um, one is it's really important to place a photograph in its times. And, and not only in the kind of social or political context of, you know, what's happening in the period, um, those kinds of questions, but also just the technological components of the photograph. So, for example, we've been talking about a daguerreotype of Abraham Lincoln. A daguerreotype was a really specific kind of photograph. It was essentially an object it was mirrored it was one of a kind and it couldn't be reproduced uh, so, you know so decades later you could have one po- pose you could have one pose of Lincoln and uh, they could generate you know hundreds of thousands of images of that same pose the daguerreotype is different so one of the things that that as a photography historian I'm interested in is um, not only how a photograph, fits into the story of its times, but how it also fits into the story of the technology of photography itself. One yeah. of the things that I think that we just forget often, you know, we tend to think about photography as if it's just one thing. And uh, in the digital era, I think now we understand that the digital images that we live with every day, they're a little bit different, maybe in pretty consequential ways, to the film uh, photographs that I was learning how to make in the darkroom in college, or the slide shows that my parents built um, about their vacations in the 1960s and 70s. We now, I think, have a better sense of the way that photography has changed over time. But that's something that I was really interested in, especially in this project, because it turns out that presidents are kind of canaries in the coal mine. They really, mm-hmm. um, they often experienced these moments of technological change in photography first. And they often did it, you know, obviously on a bigger stage.
0: I remember as a kid being a nerd and going through the history books and you hit the 19th century and you start seeing all these daguerreotypes. And first of all, I didn't know how to pronounce the word the daguerreotype. I asked my dad what it was. It looks like daguerreotype and I would butcher it. But I remember seeing it for the first time at the National Portrait Gallery And thinking, oh wow, it it almost looked like a little vanity mirror because I didn't realize that it's a mirror. You just look at it and it's a photograph in the books. So it was very surprising for me to see that. Now, before we get into specific photographs of presidents, there are certain iconic images out there of presidents. And you think of the portraits of Lincoln aging during the Civil War or Teddy Roosevelt, and there's a photo of him with his big toothy grin, and there are a lot of famous images of JFK. What do you think it is about these photographs specifically that stick with people? Why do you think that some become iconic and so many don't? You know, there's so many portraits that were meant to be iconic, but they're forgotten. But then there's one random shot of FDR with a cigar, and it's how people remember him. That's
2: so true, isn't it? I think... I think it relates to our collect. Our, I think it relates to our collective perception of who presidents are as people, and then if a photograph seems to really condense that or consolidate it in some way, then that becomes you know, the iconic image. So, for example, uh, the famous image of Richard Nixon getting on the helicopter right after he has resigned and he's you know flying off to become a private citizen again. And he turns and he knows it's a moment and he gives the big, dramatic Nixonian, you know, double finger peace sign. Right. And that image is iconic, not only because that was an incredibly significant moment in American history, the resignation of Nixon, but also because it just fit our impression of this person who, uh, you know, believed himself to be, you know, constantly fighting back against enemies, uh, you know, who was not going to skulk away uh, without putting a good face on things, right? So I think it really relates to the extent to which the public perceives that a portrait connects up with what we think of as that president's character.
0: It's almost like uh, there's an element that is spontaneous and unplanned. And so there's a historic moment that no one planned and they didn't plan. It would be the quintessential Nixon portrait, but also there's an element of, the essence of who Nixon is was captured in this moment. So it's almost like catching lightning in a bottle for a photographer.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. Several years ago, it must've been on the 40th anniversary of the resignation, uh, David Hume Kennerly, who became Ford's white house photographer, who was covering that moment and photographed that moment uh, released another photo that he took either just a moment before or just a moment after that, where it's Nixon kind of hunched over and he's kind of looking off to the side and, and Kennerly says, this is actually the moment where Nixon realizes what just happened to him. Right. Oh, but wow. that's not the famous image that the public wants to see. Right. So he, right. he, he was like, you know, it took me a long time to realize it, but this other photo that no one ever pays attention to is actually a much more interesting photo, which I thought was a really you know perceptive thing for somebody you know, who had covered that moment to, to observe.
0: Sure. Yeah. And it's kind of like you get only a slice of reality and yet it says so much. And yet there's also so much there that isn't seen as well. Another photo that comes to mind is the photo of Lyndon Johnson getting sworn in on the plane with Jackie Kennedy. And I can imagine that who knows? It, it it was such a wrenching moment. And the image of Jackie there is so powerful.
2: Yeah, yeah. And that's a really good example of a photo that needed to be made for for a lot of reasons, not only to capture that moment in history, but also to make clear at a time of uncertainty, right? This was just hours after Kennedy had died. People didn't know who did it. People didn't know why. People didn't know what was going to happen next, and to to be able to say, okay, here is the transfer of power uh, that provides some measure of certainty and safety in you know on this really really terrible uncertain day.
0: It was a necessary political photo that had to be taken.
2: Yeah, very much.
0: So I wanted to go chronologically through the presidents that you mentioned. But since we're in a Nixon series right now, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about Nixon. So you talk about his relationship with the photographer, Ollie Atkins. So what can you tell us about that relationship and how Nixon used photography in his career?
2: Nixon tolerated photography. Um, I would not say he was obsessed with it. Um, Lyndon Johnson was famously obsessed with it. And um, Lyndon Johnson's photographer, a guy named uh, Yoichi Okamoto, was um, uh, arguably the first official White House photographer to really create that role as we think of it today. Uh, Obama photographer Pete Souza has explicitly named uh, Okamoto as an inspiration. He said, You know, I want to do for history what he did for history. Uh, And so, when Nixon comes along, Ali Atkins is working. Uh, he was a, I think he worked for the Saturday evening post as a photographer. So he'd been a working you know, photojournalist and he ended up working for the 68 campaign. And Atkins said later that Nixon had to be convinced that he should have a photographer. Uh, he wasn't necessarily excited about that. And, uh, but Atkins was hired and there's all there's a broader staff they cover everything photographically at the White House everything from you know uh, visits by leaders meetings you know behind the scenes things and then of course all the public events what are known as the grip and grins where you know, you pose and you smile with your picture with the president and they take it and then they send it to you later right so mm-hmm. all of that is happening. Um, and then Atkins uh, the challenge for him is that the kind of access that, LBJ gave Okamoto, which produced a really compelling visual body of work. Atkins had none of that. He had no security clearance, so he couldn't be in any uh, meetings of really any high level significance. He uh, was not somebody who, you know, could kind of lurk around the margins and make candid photographs of Nixon. Um, One of my favorite Atkins stories is actually at the very end of Nixon's presidency, where um, you can actually find this video on YouTube. There is uh, uh, a video of about seven minutes of Nixon getting ready to go on live television to give his resignation speech in August of 1974, and you know it's essentially they've turned on the the cameras, they're setting the lighting, they're you know they're getting it all ready, and then Nixon comes in and sits down, and of course. It's probably the most awkward thing ever, because he's getting ready to resign. And this is an incredibly consequential moment for him and for the nation. And so Nixon's sort of awkwardly, very awkwardly chatting. And you can watch all this unfold on YouTube and sort of cringe along. Uh, It's
0: like the blooper reel.
2: Yeah, it's really kind of intense and fascinating. But when I started watching it, what I noticed pretty quickly is you hear the click of a camera and then Nixon, you know, kind of says, thank you, that's enough. And he has this sort of false smile. And then he turns to the camera crew, the CBS TV crew and says, oh, that's my photographer, Ollie, you know, Um, he's always trying to take pictures of me picking my nose, <laughs> you know. And so what you realize is that Off camera, Atkins is trying to cover history. He's trying to photograph this moment. He's trying to, you know, essentially... Work for this president that he's been working for, who's about to resign. And it goes on for like two minutes on and off, where Nixon essentially spends a good chunk of time berating Atkins, telling him, No, you've taken enough photographs. Didn't you just take another one? The press will get mad if uh, I let you take too many photos because I'm not letting them take too many photos. And, you know, this kind of back and forth. And you can hear Atkins mumbling a little bit in the background. And you know and at the end it's like okay now he goes on tv and resigns right so what what was so striking to me was that at this moment that's just this most consequential moment for nixon in this long storied political career he's he's grousing at his photographer hmm. and it, to me, it just condensed so many interesting things about Nixon, but also about photography. Presidents wanting to control their image. Um, presidents wanting to be um, sure of how they were being photographed. You know, a number of things that were playing out, um, you know, that were kind of playing out across a number of presidencies during that time just really get encapsulated in that very awkward moment.
0: Yeah, that is fascinating when you think that Richard Nixon... Who was obsessed enough with wanting to keep a historical record, so that he recorded audio files of his phone calls and meetings, but when it came to photography, I guess he felt he he felt that the microphone was kinder to him than the camera. I guess.
2: Yeah, you know, and it's um, he was always the circumstances were always kind of against him. So there's uh, another story that's a little bit apocryphal, but the visual evidence is there. Um, There was a photographer named Cecil Stoughton who actually worked in the Kennedy White House and made some very famous photographs of Kennedy. Uh, And uh, when Nixon was being sworn in for the second time, Stoughton happened to be the head photographer. I think it was like the National Park Service. And so he was on the dais at the second inauguration, And he was allowed to stand behind Nixon to shoot the swearing in. But what that meant was that he showed up behind Nixon and all the TV and the pictures. And so you don't just see Nixon standing there, you know, with the Bible and the, you know, the whole bit. You see this random guy kind of crouched down behind him wearing a checkered blazer and a camera. And apparently the narrative is that he got fired after this. Um, I'm not exactly sure whether that's true or not, but, but it, you, it gets at this idea of like, the guy kind of can't catch a break, right? Even at this moment, that should be the most scripted controlled moment. There's some, you know, random dude with the camera, you know, messing up his shot.
0: So you also mention something about George Washington. Apparently there's a story about him and photography even though clearly Washington died many decades before photography. So what's the story there?
2: Yeah, you know, I kind of went into the research on this. I thought, well, I guess if this is a book about presidents, I should start with Washington. But, you know, he died 40 years before photography was invented. I'm not going to find much. And it turned out I found all kinds of things. So um, what was interesting to me about that earliest period of photography, when people were really trying to figure out what it was and what it did, is – that photography needed presidents um, for, for, you know, we think today presidents need photography to build an image, et cetera. Um, But early photography really needed presidents to, uh, to kind of articulate its value uh, to the nation, to show its importance as a way to record um, uh, famous people, a way to record history. And so it turns out that Washington um, who at that time in the you know 1840s and moving into the 1850s is you know very much the visual icon of the nation still he has not yet handed that mantle over to Lincoln in the late 19th century and so he appears everywhere right He's in busts, he's in paintings, he's in portraits he's printed on fabrics he's on music lyrics, song sheets, all kinds of things China And so what photographers start doing is, they decide they kind of need to photograph Washington. So they start making daguerreotypes of painted portraits, for example, of Washington. Um, There were a couple of photographers that very famously um, uh, posed their children with busts of Washington, sort of hugging him, uh, you know, looking up at him, you know, as the children of the father of the country, these kind of you know, what we would see now is kind of hokey, allegorical images. Um, and so Washington, it turned out, was actually a pretty popular subject of early photography. The, the, one of the things that I found that was really interesting to me and that kind of drove home this idea that photography needed Washington was uh, in 1848, the cornerstone to the Washington Monument was laid in Washington, DC. And it was this huge event, Thousands of people came. Um, uh, Dolly Madison was there. Uh, Eliza Hamilton, the widow of Alexander Hamilton, was there. You know, they brought out kind of all the old people that were still around, plus Abraham Lincoln was there, a young congressman, and speeches. And you can imagine a variety of things that would be at an event like that. And they had a kind of time capsule, although they didn't call it that, uh, where the idea was that they were going to put items from the present into the cornerstone. And as I started researching this event, I came across a list of the items that they had placed inside the cornerstone. Um, One of them was uh, what they called daguerreotypes of President and Mrs. Washington. So I can only assume that those were daguerreotypes of some artwork, a painting, for example. And then the second thing is that they actually put instructions for making daguerreotypes into The cornerstone of the Washington Monument. So, what was really interesting to me about that was that it that sort of signaled two things. It signaled that photography needed and wanted to make a connection to Washington, right? So we're gonna we're gonna um, put images of Washington in the monument, which makes sense, but we're going to also highlight this new technology, this very dramatic, exciting technology that is like the new medium of the age by putting in these daguerreotype instructions. So instead of showing, you know, what is the most exciting thing about the daguerreotype, which is that it can photograph a person who's still alive and we see what they really look like, they decide to put in a daguerreotype of Washington. So it's this kind of it's this interesting juxtaposition, right? Where they need Washington, but there's also this idea that we just really want to highlight, you know, what's new and exciting in 1848.
0: So I have a funny story actually with presidents and early daguerreotypes because there was a trivia question and I think it was something to do with what is like the earliest sitting president who's been photographed and I don't know how accurate they were, but I was convinced that it was William Henry Harrison because I had a book when I was a kid and there was a daguerreotype of William Henry Harrison and the caption literally said, this is the first daguerreotype or photograph of a sitting president. And I was convinced it was him, but it was someone else. And I thought it was him. So my wife and I had this argument and... (laughs) here I am saying, I have a (laughs) podcast on presidents, so I'm right. And I let her found, well, she told me I was wrong. And then she read to me why I was wrong. And I find out that that book neglected to mention that that is a daguerreotype of a painting of William Henry Harrison. And I was excited because I think if you make a really good daguerreotype of a painting, that painting might actually look like a person, like a real photo as opposed to a painting. so anyways, I learned the hard way that William Henry Harrison portrait is and I've learned to trust my wife's judgment all the more, so
2: okay well yeah. let me let me complicate things further for you, however, which might oh, produce good. some spousal conflict oh, because great. That was a, that image you saw was a daguerreotype of a painted portrait, but Harrison was the first sitting president to be photographed, but we don't have the image anymore. So that is the rub. So, so Harrison was photographed early in 1841 before he dropped dead very, very, very early, as we all know in his term. Uh, And the daguerreotype is lost to history. So, I, I so, but <laughs> I yes, see. and and so there is a painting, there's a daguerreotype of a painting. So, that is where the book story comes from. So, you're kind of both right, sure. which is in spousal negotiation is actually the best sure. way to be, I think. Yeah, yeah.
0: She's right. She's right. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's great. Thank you for clearing that up, by the way, because that solves a mystery that I've always wanted to know. So, you mentioned that the oldest existing photo of A president is a daguerreotype of John Quincy Adams, our sixth president. So what can you tell me about him and his relationship to photography?
2: Yeah, Adams is really interesting because he not only was, you know, he's important because he's the first president whose photograph we still have. uh, uh, And at the same time, what was really compelling to me was that because Adams kept a diary nearly every day of his life, we have all these accounts of sitting for daguerreotypes. And so what I write about in the book is his experience of being photographed and what he thought daguerreotypes were like, uh, whether he liked them or not, uh, his frustrations with being daguerreotyped, which was a a complicated process for uh, Adams, who at that point is at the end of his life.
0: It's probably Um, how people now feel about being memed.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so Adams, um, he, he sat for his first daguerreotype in 1842. And what happened with him is what happened, I think, with a lot of elite people, which is that the photographers would invite them to come and say, will you come and sit with me? And then the idea is, you know, um, presumably, like you'll get this for free, but then I can display it. And then I can, again, I need presidents to show that my art is good, et cetera, et cetera. And then people can come to my studio and, you know, um, uh, I can build my business. So Adams sits, uh, he goes in 1842. Um, based on the accountings in the diary, and given that Adams was so prolific in his diary, um, I feel pretty confident that my numbers are correct based on you know what he reported in his diary. But he, he sat for probably upwards of 50 daguerreotypes between 1842 and his death in 1848.
0: Which now, is obviously years after his presidency.
2: Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So at this point, he's a sitting congressman from Massachusetts. Uh, he spends a lot of his diary in addition to talking politics, um, complaining about his health and old age. Uh, and that was fun to kind of uh, work through as well, you know, realize that a lot of Adams' response to being photographed was just a response to somebody who didn't like what they saw in the mirror anymore, sure. right? And, and then the photograph freezes that. Well, that's no fun. Um, yeah, so Adams, um, so he sat roughly probably around, he sat for probably around 50 daguerreotypes um, sometimes up to six or seven per sitting. You know, you, so, so that number doesn't mean he sat for 50 different photographers. It means that, that potentially 50 daguerreotypes were made um, during sittings with him. And his early sittings, um, he seemed really interested in the technology photography, um, but he was also really skeptical of what it could offer uh, people in terms of the quality of its portraiture. And Adams was a guy who, you know, I mean, he's a child of the American Revolution. He's, he's, you know, at the end of his life, he's literally held almost every role in government. He's extremely important. He's a beloved figure.
0: Elder uh, statesman.
2: Yeah, very much. And so, um, you know, he's a guy who's used to being painted and sculpted and documented visually. And he was interested in artists. He was interested in portraiture. He collected images of himself and his family members. So he's a pretty visually astute. You know, educated guy, and so he takes an interest in the daguerreotype, but he decides it's just not good enough uh, to what he to do what he called conveying uh, uh, one's memory to the next age is is the phrase he used. So he was also really interested in the idea that a portrait should extend beyond the person, right? And he knew that he as a historical figure was going to be communicating visually to people, you know, many years from now. And what was funny was that um, Adams says at one point early on, when he's started seeing daguerreotypes for the first time and, and sitting for them, he says that the silhouette is a more accurate likeness of a person than the daguerreotype, which, you know, when I was in school, we did these art things where you, know, you would sit and your teacher would project your silhouette on the wall and then you, you would take it home to your parents for Mother's Day or something. And it doesn't necessarily seem to me as accurate as a photograph, but for Adams, it was. And what that got me thinking about was, okay, what is it that people needed to know about likenesses and silhouettes to believe that? So the daguerreotype challenged Adams and I think a lot of his contemporaries who were used to these older visual media um, to try to figure out how they could be used and whether they were valuable.
0: So thus began the, uh, I guess you could say, complicated relationship between presidents and photography. And I've always thought, I like to think of the context where you mentioned these photographers needed presidents to give them subjects subjects that people wanted to have and that to me sounded a lot like the next evolution from the painting where painting and sculpting where people would sit for painting and sculptures and so there was probably some similarity there but those things had such such there was the artist had license to idealize the person or to portray them in allegorical ways So John Quincy Adams had experienced that, lots of paintings of him, and then suddenly, no, we're actually going to capture the image of you. And that must have been such a fascinating transition to think of being in an era where you had no concept of what it was like to capture someone's image and without actually having to paint it or draw it. To capture that To me, it's akin to the first people that heard the radio. What was that like? The first people that saw film. What was that like? It must have been such a paradigm shift for people to see that.
2: Yeah, and you know, and it it plays out in the diary and some of the language he uses. So he writes about his experience of being daguerreotyped for the first time, and he talks about. Um, you know, you needed a lot of light to make these images. And so they would build studios, usually on the top floor of a building with like huge skylights and floor to ceiling windows. And because you needed as much natural light as you could. Uh, And so he, he writes about, you know, how they brought him to, you know, something that he, he writes, looks like a greenhouse. Uh, And so he's trying to grasp, right. What this looks like. And then he describes being, um, being sat down on uh, a chair and having um, a large telescope pointed at him so there too you know he's thinking of he's looking at the giant camera and the lens and you know so you can see he's trying to make these analogies to familiar technologies and that's exactly right and so and 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 then there's a point where uh, I think during his second sitting he says, he reports the conversation he had with the photographer and and he says, you know, the photographer says it's this, these, it's a chemical reaction, et cetera, et cetera. And then he says, but I have no idea how the image came upon the plate. Right. So this is somebody who like, you know, fought for the founding of the Smithsonian institution. You know, he was very deeply interested in science and technology, but you know, his initial exposure, he's like, I don't know. Like, I don't know how that happened. Sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know how, some of the basic technologies around me happen. I would love to have heard his journal description of someone taking an iPhone (laughs) or taking a digital photo of him. So that is fascinating. That must've been fun to read as far as his recollection.
1: History is complicated. or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.
0: So we fast forward a little bit, and we have President William McKinley now, so we're talking about 70, 80 years later, Photography has become much more commonplace. What role did photography play in his story? And I know that there is a little bit about his assassination here, so I'm really interested to hear what you have to say. So
2: McKinley is McKinley comes down to us as as kind of one of the first modern media presidents. Um, he uh, ran a campaign that was very modern and sophisticated for. Uh, the late 19th century. Um, and he was, for example, the first um, president to appear on motion picture. So he was very much interested in the technology. I think his brother-in-law was actually a founder and executive of one of the early film companies. So he clearly had a a, a kind of a family in uh, to the media as well. Um, so McKinley, in terms of his time in the white house, um, set up a lot of the, what we would think of today as the more professionalized communications operations, um, primarily through his prime, uh, primarily through his private secretary, George Cordelieu, who is kind of known as the first real white house press secretary, you know, again, the way that we tended to think of that role as it's evolved since. So McKinley himself is a pretty sophisticated media figure. Um, He had what I would call a kind of court photographer. So we don't get the official role of the official White House photographer like we have today, really, until arguably the mid 20th century. You can, there were a number of White House photographers who worked in the Roosevelt White House and the Truman White House, and after that. And then I mentioned LBJ's photographer, Yoichi Okamoto, who really solidified that role as a key role for the president. Um, but what McKinley had was he, and then later after him, Teddy Roosevelt uh, worked very closely with a woman named Frances Benjamin Johnston. And she uh, arguably was uh, his white house photographer. And also she did a lot of photographing of Roosevelt and his family later. Um, Johnston was Uh, Johnston's a really interesting figure in her own right, and she was kind of the daughter of important Washington, D.C. people who took up a camera and because she had access to a lot of these folks through her family, began making photographs. So Johnston uh, made many of the important portraits of McKinley, and she was with him when he went to Buffalo, New York for the Pan American Exposition in 1901 where he was assassinated. So what I write about in the book, sadly for McKinley, is mostly what happened after he died Mm -hmm. because the, the local and national media went on this really interesting race to find what they called his last photographs. So at this moment in the technology of photography's development, We have the rise of, we have film cameras now. Uh, We can print photographs in newspapers and magazines pretty easily. We can carry around our own cameras that we buy from Kodak for a dollar. Camera's called the Brownie. So photography is pretty common. More and more people have it. People who would have attended the Pan American Exposition would have all been running around with cameras.
0: It's a consumer. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And uh, and Kodak is a big player in all of this. And of course, it's right down the road in Rochester, New York. So a lot of the advertising that Kodak was doing was about having, you know, encouraging people to take your camera to the exposition and photograph all the exciting things that you'll see there. So when McKinley is assassinated, he's shot in public at at an essentially at a public event where he is shaking hands with people and he's shot and then he is taken to the home of a Buffalo citizen and and then dies roughly a week later. From the time between when McKinley is shot until a little bit after his death, this question kind of starts to emerge in the local papers, and in some of the national magazines, and that is, did anyone photograph the assassination, right? People were there. Clearly, people with cameras were there. And so even though there is no known photograph of the McKinley assassination, there's only a rendering and a drawing and a lot of verbal accounts, uh, the newspapers started to write about the assassination as if it could have been photographed. And that was really fascinating to me, because what it said was that people were confident enough that the technology of photography could have done it, even though it didn't happen. And so what happened instead, because there's now this vacuum, like we don't have photographs of this moment, because it really would have been, frankly, impossible to capture with the technology that most people would have been using, Um, just in terms of the available light and film and the quality of the cameras and all of that. And the fact that it happened so instantaneously, the shooting. Um, But so what starts to happen is that the press then becomes obsessed with finding all of the last photographs of William McKinley. And so I write in the book about this kind of morbid quest really where, okay, we don't have photographs of the assassination. And after he is shot, but before he dies, McKinley's not in public view, obviously, anymore, and so we have to do something <laughs> and so in the absence of presidents uh, in, in the absence of pictures of the president we have the opportunity to photograph literally everything else we will photograph and put in the paper the chair where he was sitting for a moment after he was shot we will photograph the people photographing the house where he's staying um we'll we'll publish photographs of everything he did publicly up until the the event where he was shot. So this moment of the McKinley assassination is to me, a kind of turning point where people's minds are wrapped around the idea that you really could have a timely kind of photography that could capture this event, but photography itself isn't quite there yet. So, you know, and then later, of course, when we get the Kennedy assassination, we have a much different, relationship to visual evidence playing out. But but what really struck me about that moment with McKinley is how much people just were really, really wanted there to be a picture of him being shot.
0: Right. It, it's, it, it seems to be the time where photography came of age in one sense, where the expectation was that, oh, that surely this was documented because you know, cameras are everywhere and people have them and there's this mindset you can capture so much. Uh, but And yet it hadn't really come of age yet. I think the expectation had come of age, but not the reality yet. That's fascinating. I've never heard that angle of the McKinley assassination. And I'm sure, as you know, there are lots of drawings of what the assassination looked like. And those inform so much of what one thinks it looked like, regardless of the accuracy um, knowing my luck, I might have thought that that was a daguerreotype of a, the actual <laughs> in, <laughs> moment or uh, pain, painting or drawing of the actual moment but and then I, i'm I'm glad you brought up the parallel of the Kennedy assassination because there is this i guess you could say morbid fascination with the Zapruder film of even the autopsy photos of president kennedy and 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 the photos of the shooting beyond the Zapruder film. Uh, and we have all that, but there is a part of you that kind of wishes that. Well, you know, it would be fascinating to see the image of McKinley getting shot. It would be. So yeah,
2: yeah, and you know that that the idea of the expectation uh, that that it, it could have been or should have been the case that you pictured it is is exactly right, and you know a lot of the captions. Uh, even that people used of the images were getting at that. Like, you know, they would say, here here are Mrs. And, and President McKinley in the carriage, you know, before he was shot. And it's a photo that was made like the day before, right? But they want to tell you it was before he was shot. And so you have this image in your mind, like, oh, this must have happened right before, right? So again, if we don't have the actual moment, we'll try to craft a story that puts you as close to the actual moment as we can, even if we're, you oh, know, wow. even if we're, we're kind of stringing you along a little bit.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating because I, I recall having seen, there are photos out there like that and, you know, they show up in, uh, I think it's uh, BuzzFeed articles where it's like, oh, this is the moment right before McKin. There's, there's one of him, I think uh, I know the one with him and his wife and I think they're on a carriage with a lot of flowers or something like that. I don't know if my memory is serving correctly, but I think I saw one of those that was supposed to have happened right before. And there's one of McKinley walking upstairs Mm that supposedly of him going to the temple of music where he got shot. So I I mean, you know, maybe I I don't, I don't really know when those photos happened. Maybe it was the day before.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And there were, and there, there are, if. If you kind of look at all of those various images that the newspapers collected, some from journalists or this uh, woman Frances Benjamin Johnston who was with McKinley, uh, continue to circulate. Um, others are snapshots that you can still see that people made. But um, but yeah, the idea is to piece the timeline together. And from from the perspective of you know I'm someone who also studies communication and speechmaking, and so one of the other things that's interesting about McKinley. Is that he, the day before his shooting, he gave a a speech, uh, a large public speech at the exposition. And so the photograph that Francis Benjamin Johnston made of his last speech became really iconic. It's probably one of the images that pops up if you search him, you know, on a Google image search, for example. Um, And uh, that is really interesting to me because it sort of speaks to the way that it was the last time they spoke as president, right? He was laying out, um, you know, plans for, uh, the future. He talked about international relations. And so the image of the last speech becomes really significant because it is, uh, Uh, That's a mode of presidential communication that's so important, especially in that period. And that photograph actually becomes the basis for the McKinley statue um, in his hometown.
0: Hmm. And, of course, it was a speech that everyone watching, none of them realized, McKinley himself, that it would be his last speech. So up next, then you talk about Presidents Hoover and FDR. And I'm really curious about this because, I mean, we've done a series on FDR, and FDR, I mean, he's a very fascinating man. Herbert Hoover, uh, I've done research for him for a future script, and he is a lot more interesting than I think history has, uh, I think, um, given him credit for. But you have these two men who couldn't have been any more different. In FDR's case, he was a master communicator. How did photography play out during their presidencies
2: yes two very different men but they're both caught in what i would call the same era of photography and so they have to work with that and work through it and that's um what came to be known as the candid camera era of photography so cameras um beginning in the 20th century, start to get smaller and smaller. Um, Today to us, they would look huge still and very heavy, but at the time they were called miniature cameras. And um, many of us, you know, I was a kid in the 1970s and the film cameras that my parents had held 35 millimeter film. And so when we talk about the candid camera era, we're essentially talking about the era uh, beginning in the late 1920s and 1930s where 35 millimeter film and cameras were um, uh, uh, became more widely available. And so these were cameras that didn't require a lot of light. You could, you could take photos um, more surreptitiously if you wanted to, you could sneak around um, and you could also catch people unaware. And so that's the idea of the candid nature of the candid camera. And For Hoover, there are kind of a few challenges. Uh, You know, I've been joking with people that, you know, this book is not called photogenic presidents, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So Hoover becomes photographic, even if he's not very photogenic, because he is in the White House uh, at this moment where presidents need to deal with the rise of the candid camera. And- um,
0: The unauthorized photo. Yeah,
2: exactly, exactly. But there's a kind of script- that develops um, that you are supposed to follow to play along with the candid camera. So uh, in the book, I talk about uh, this very well-known photographer named Eric Solomon, who was a a German photographer. And he comes up in the late 1920s and becomes kind of the master of the candid camera. Um, He was known as the king of the indiscreet. And he uh, eventually begins photographing diplomatic events across Europe. You know, this is the period where Western Europe is between the two wars. There's all kinds of diplomatic conferences uh, happening, um, big national and international events. And Solomon goes to these and starts to kind of lurk around the edges and make photographs of prime ministers and, you know, other important People in Western Europe, and they start to like what he's doing because he is not posing them in any way. He is photographing them late at night in the bar, having conversations around the table. Um, you know, smoking their cigarettes. Um, you know, kind of doing the, the talk,
0: being people. Yeah. Right. (laughs) The
2: talking work of diplomacy. Right. And they see this and they think this is great because this is actually what, what we do. And this, this is how
0: the sausage is made. Yeah, It's showing, you know, kind of the
2: backroom deals and what's important. And yes, sometimes people don't always look that great, but it's candid. It's intimate. It's up close
0: backstage passes. Yeah,
2: exactly. And so the politicians in Europe start to see like, Oh, this, this is actually pretty great. Um, and Hoover kind of doesn't get the memo. So what happens is in 1931, Solomon comes to the United States, um, with Pierre Laval from France. And this is in the midst of debt negotiations. Uh, this is all still the fallout from world war one, right. And, and what nations and what debt, et cetera. And so these are pretty high level meetings and, uh, Solomon is first turned away from being able to photograph the meeting between Hoover and Laval at the White House. And then later, Laval convinces somebody, oh, come on, right? And I talk in the book about how the photos, even though they're described in places like Time Magazine as candid photos of the two men in intimate conversation, um, Laval is performing that very nicely. Um, he's not looking at the camera, he's engaging with Hoover. Um, but Hoover does not know how to be candid. He does not know how to ignore the camera, and so he poses right because that's what he's supposed to do. So I talk in the I talk in in that section of the book about how the candid camera both is kind of a foe to these leaders, to presidents because it can catch you unaware. You know, you might be picking your nose, you might be doing something awkward with food. Um, It
0: exposes you. Exactly,
2: right? It can kind of violate your privacy. But at the same time, if you play along with it, it can give you a particular kind of visual image that is um, new and interesting and contemporary, right? And Hoover just kind of doesn't get the memo. Roosevelt is really interesting. Oh, yeah. I was going to
0: add one thing. I I can kind of understand because it's, it's like that moment where someone says, all right, I'm going to take a candid shot, act normal. And then you, you just look at it, the camera and smile, you know, because you're thinking, you know, well, it's kind of artificial to suddenly try to act normal on purpose, but anyways.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And in fact, one of the best photographs of Hoover, in my opinion um, it's probably not a very long list, but is a photo that Solomon made surreptitiously by putting a camera in a flower pot at a white house correspondence dinner where you were not supposed to have a camera. So he, the, the white house press corps got angry at him for that. But if you look at the Sneaky. photo, it's actually a, a kind of a great photo. Um, and in hmm. fact,
0: I have to look it up. In
2: fact, uh fortune magazine ended up using it to illustrate uh, a, in 1932, a big uh, kind of the case for Hoover in 1932 story, um, you know, pro-business kind of case. And, and in that context, you know, they cropped it so that he looks you know, even more heroic than he did in the original. So so the candid camera could have worked for Hoover, and maybe it did in that one case anyway.
0: All by accident. So now you mentioned Roosevelt.
2: Yeah, so Roosevelt, um, you know, a lot of what people talk about, understandably, with Roosevelt in terms of being photographed and filmed is his disability, And the narratives about how his disability could not be visually disclosed and this kind of tacit agreement, these unwritten rules, some of which were actually written uh, about in what context you could or could not photograph Roosevelt, et cetera, right? So that the idea was that you don't disclose the extent of his disability. So there were rules about not photographing him walking with braces in a wheelchair being carried to and from the car. And all of that is definitely a key thing to think about in terms of Roosevelt and photography. But what ended up being as interesting to me thinking about Roosevelt and Hoover together was that they both were living and working in this era of the candid camera. So when I started to look at the broader question apart from Roosevelt's disability, what I found was a lot of anxiety about the candid camera generally, right? What it could show, um, how bad it could make you look. (laughs) And these are not necessarily questions about um, making Roosevelt's disability invisible. These are just questions about not wanting to have those candid photos taken of you when you're unaware. So one kind of recurring theme is, uh, an example that they kept bringing up over and over again was pictures of Roosevelt eating a hot dog, right? It's just indecorous to photograph anyone eating food, even if they're at a congressional picnic where hot dogs are being served, right? Don't make those photographs.
0: Especially hot yeah, dogs. Yeah, exactly. Dude, just literally stuffing your face. Exactly. Yeah.
2: exactly. And so it became kind of, to me, it was sort of this fun exercise of like, Oh, here's another story about how we can't photograph Roosevelt with hot dogs. Um, but this all kind of came to a head in um uh, in the in the mid 1930s, when um, Roosevelt was photographed at a baseball game, enjoying himself, but the photographs, when they were circulated, you know, on the wire services, made him look pretty bad. And that was more a function of just the technology that you blow up a uh, you blow up a candid camera photograph, you blow up a 35 millimeter negative, you know, it's going to lose resolution, as we would say now in the digital age. And it's just not going to look very good. And so what happened was the White House started getting phone calls about people concerned about Roosevelt's health. And because people were always concerned about Roosevelt's health and because the White House is especially sensitive to that, um, it became this question of like, well, we have to ban the candid camera and we can't have these little cameras around um, photographing the president, you know, in the Oval Office when he doesn't know about it, Um or at any of these events, right, that are unauthorized. So the candid camera becomes a kind of shorthand for how do we control the visual media in a way that's going to continue um, not just to uphold the, the unwritten rules about Roosevelt and his disability, but just continue the need to make Roosevelt look as good physically as he can.
0: I think with FDR, you kind of have the, the gold standard of a president hiding his physical state. And he's clearly not the first president to do that. But I think uh it's often kind of marveled at that the White House was able to keep the extent of his disability hidden. And yeah, I, I guess I, I hadn't really thought about the photography elements of that. I think you you think about the broader media and how somehow the media adhered to a lot of these guidelines, but as far as the photography, so much of it is accidental, right? Like how do you control a photo from getting out? You ban the cameras.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And there were a few cases where Roosevelt's uh, political enemies in the media, um, uh, Colonel McCormick at the Chicago Tribune and uh, Henry Luce at Life magazine, um, you know, people who were politically opposed to Roosevelt, um, They let through images that, you know, kind of leaked through that supposed ban. So Life magazine, uh, for example, uh, published a photograph of Roosevelt uh, taken from very far away. Um, And if you knew it was Roosevelt, you could tell. But it's pretty hard to just be like, oh, that's Roosevelt. Um, Him being wheeled in to visit a friend at the Naval Hospital in Washington, D.C. and the White House essentially wrote to Roosevelt's doctor <laughs> at the Naval Hospital and said, you can't let these people stand on the sidewalk anymore. Right? Um, but you know, in terms of the disability and the, the extent to which they kept it hidden, what is also true, which which relates back to Roosevelt's communication skill is at the same time, he talked about it a lot and he spoke about it a lot. So So he didn't talk about it in the sense of like, oh, I am disabled and here's what I can do or not do. But he, you know, he created the March of Dimes campaign, which was very open about polio. He was very much an advocate um, uh, for, you know, the kinds of activities that they were doing in Warm Springs, Georgia. Um, He made himself extremely visible during especially the 32 campaign where he, you know, got on airplanes and flew all over the place. And so on the one hand, he was very visible all the time. And on the other hand, there were these things that they wanted to keep invisible. So what's even more skillful to me about that is the extent to which they were able to manage both of those things. And then the candid camera was kind of always this little thorn in their sides because it's just out there and you don't, it's not predictable.
0: Yeah. And that's always something I I remember trying to pin down because I think there's different perspectives or different, Perceptions rather on what was hidden. And I think some people think, oh, Roosevelt, uh, no one knew he had polio. And it, what I found, it's more, no one knew, or people didn't know the extent of his polio because he could fake standing up. He had help from, you know, whoever he was holding on to, the two people that were helping him, quote unquote, walk. But it was more the extent to which he had it. Um, I think people would have been surprised that he was basically in a wheelchair for the whole time
2: yeah and you know even popular images and cartoons even those that were critical of him pictured him running pictured him with legs pictured him out doing active things um and so those images reinforced that impression right of of not knowing the extent yeah
0: So now we jump another, let's say, 70 years or so, and we get to President Obama, uh, very recent. It's the Internet age, and he's the first African-American president, so there's a great deal of symbolism, a symbolic moment for American history. Now we're dealing with social media. What did presidential photography look like then, and what was that experience like for the Obama administration?
2: Early on, the Obama administration, um, you know, they really picked up where they left off with the campaign, which is to embrace every new medium they possibly could, right? It's kind of like you throw it all at the wall and you see what sticks. And that really ended up being a big part of their visual strategy in the White House as well. So... Um, you know, I have a little uh, list in the book that says, you know, this is when they went on YouTube. This is when they went on uh, Flickr. This is when they went on Facebook. This is when they went on Twitter. Right. And so anything that we all were doing during that period, uh, the Obama White House was doing it, too, for sure. What I focused on uh, in terms of photography was this interesting choice that they made very early in the uh, in the Obama administration to take photographs that were the same kinds of photographs that official White House photographers had been making for history, right? To keep in a museum, to put in the presidential library. Um, You know, these kind of photographs had been made for decades at this point. But what the Obama White House decided to do was to uh, put some of them, a very carefully curated small collection of them, on a social media platform called Flickr. And Flickr is probably now only known in the broader public because the presidents are on it. Um, but at the time it was, and it still remains a pretty popular site for photographers um, to post their work, to comment on one another's work, to um, share work you know, via a Creative Commons license, uh, et cetera. And so when the photographs started showing up there, And then people started really paying attention to them. And it became almost like a news event every time they would, you know, drop another uh, folder of photos from last month. Um, I got really interested in why that was working and how that was working. So how was it that photographs essentially created to be preserved for history were also playing a pretty big role in real-time media politics?
0: Hmm. So I think and there you have kind of the instantaneous nature of the presidency and being the idea being that it's accessible to the public, right? Everyone use lots of people use Flickr. I remember I used to use Flickr. And so that that seemed like that was the goal, kind of forging that connection.
2: Yeah, and it was also very much early on about the you know I think we sometimes forget that in the early web 2.0 days everything was about interactivity. And now that we have so much interactivity, I think we forget how much interactivity we actually didn't want in that early period. So for example, um, the White House comments uh, on the Flickr site were on for about a year. And predictably, you can imagine the kinds of comments somebody would post, right? Um, It was everything from, hey, Pete Souza, what lens did you use? This is a great shot to... um, you know any kind of political or racist screed that you might imagine, right? And it's the free world of uh, social media, and so there's not much ability to delete, um, et cetera. And so at a certain point, the comments just disappeared. And I actually was in email contact with Pete Souza because I could not find any documentation of why this was, and he basically said, that's a great question. One day I got a message from a teacher who said, look, I really love the site. I use it with my students to help explain to them what presidents do every day. But the comments are so um, incendiary. I can't use it to teach anymore. And so what Sousa told me was he went and turned the comments off at that point. Um, And so that to me was really interesting. And it pointed to you know, the, the challenge of that particular platform and all social media platforms for presidents. You want to be able to essentially put yourself out there without the filters of mainstream media, which was a really important thing that Obama took extensive advantage of and was often criticized for. But at the same time, if you're too interactive, right, then you lose control. And so what I talk about in the book is kind of how this balance plays out. And it often plays out really... In favor of Obama. So, for example, if we think about memes, if we think about the kind of famous images, the viral images that emerge from the Obama administration, a lot of the memes that we still see are actually based on those White House photographs that were released on Flickr. So Obama continues to exist and circulate, you know, um, in the memescapes of our political imagination um, long after he's out of office. And so there's this kind of visual life to the social media presidency that is distinct from the way that other presidents used official photography before. There's also other thorny issues too. So for example, one of the things that I got kind of weirdly in the weeds on was um, there was this whole debate about whether the images could be copywritten. And this came up for in a number of contexts, um, but But essentially the question was, are they in the public domain or not? And if they are, can the White House control anything anybody does with them? And the White House Hmm. at a certain point kind of tried to split the difference by creating this really um, kind of weak, what I called the pseudo-copyright statement, which still exists actually. If you even go to Biden's site or if you went to Trump's site, it exists, I think a version of it exists there too. That basically says this photo is made for, you know, the purposes of the people, you know, don't use it to do anything else. <laughs> but, I mean, there's literally, you know, it, right. it belongs to you and me if we're if we're citizens of the United States, there's literally nothing that can control how we use these images. And so it was kind of this wink and a nod that oh well we want to you know control these images but we also recognize that we really have no control over these images
0: that's that's very cool that you're in touch with pete souza um our logo is actually inspired by a photo he did take of president obama so his uh His, his work has quite an impact.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, I'm looking at it right now. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Pete um, uh, we've communicated a little bit and he was really helpful for me in terms of understanding some things about the history of the white house photographer role. Obviously he's very knowledgeable about that and um, you know, invested in getting it right. So that was really helpful for me.
0: Sure. So having studied, uh, A great deal of history. And I love the stories that you you tell of the presidents that aren't really as remembered. You know, we have so many photographs of the Lincolns and the JFKs, and those are amazing, great photographs. But hearing the story of McKinley and Hoover and John Quincy Adams, um, it it really kind of uh, brings to life that era, which is sometimes forgotten. Um, But with that said, What does the future of presidential photography look like? Where do you think that it's, it's going?
2: The transition from Obama to Trump and then to Biden has been visually pretty interesting, partly because Biden, I think is coming back a little more full circle to where we left things with Obama. And what was compelling about the, the flicker photographs, uh, that the Obama administration circulated and that whole corpus of the incredible work that Pete Susan has staffed it during those eight years was, you know, we talked earlier about that, like what makes a photograph of a president iconic. And I talked about that idea of the consistency between your impression of the person and the images. And what what Susan's photographs of Obama gave us was uh, a pretty consistent visual story about who Obama is as a person both as a leader and also as a human being, right? Um, you think about all of the, the um, tumblers and the memes of, you know, Obama loves babies and pictures of Obama with kids and, you know, and, and you get a sense that this is really, uh, these are really aspects of him. These are not invented for the camera. And so what happens when you transition from Obama to Trump, similar to what we talked about with Nixon, is that you lose that kind of intimate close access to the president as a person. And so the visual, the official visual record of Trump is probably not going to be very deeply studied like his tweets are, for example, because it is pretty um, boring. It is a lot of gripping and grinning. It is a lot of thumbs up. It is mostly posing. Um, At least the images that we were allowed to see uh, during the Trump administration, none of them give us kind of any of that glimpse of what was happening behind the scenes, the kinds of images that Sousa was making. So now with Biden, we're coming back around, I think, um, partly because some of the same folks who were working in the Obama White House are now working for uh, the Biden administration. So Lawrence Jackson, for example, who was a photographer uh, uh, who worked with Sousa uh, is now uh, Vice President Harris's uh, uh, chief photographer. So what I'm expecting to see is... um, A similar kind of investment, but there's a couple things that are really interesting, one of which, the most important of which, is Vice President Harris. Um, She's been highly visible at events, and she's highly visible already in their photographic record. And so it's clear that her groundbreaking, you know, role is going to be very much a part of the visual record. And then the other, the second thing, which is just more, it's more a function of Biden's age relative to Obama is that we don't have an attractive young family living in the White House anymore. There are grandkids and dogs and whatnot, but that visual record is just going to look different as well. But, you know, photography itself continues to evolve. And so as we move to whatever the next phase of digital photography is, you know, I would expect that there would be more surprises.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and I think that's kind of part of the whole story of photography, right? Photography is constantly evolving and the presidency is is taking uh, what its capabilities are, but always kind of experiencing the changes that go along. And you can't always predict what's going to happen. Just like you said, with the Flickr example, there are some unintended consequences, but also I think uh, over time it's going to be unpredictable, but they'll have to adapt to it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And now those norms that the Obama White House set up Everyone has, you know, Trump had to have a flicker, even though he didn't really know how to use it. And Biden has to have a flicker. And, you know, what's going to come next? Right. It sets up all the rules for everybody else who follows, which is really interesting, too.
0: Well, I'm sure we could probably spend a long time talking about every president. And just all the photos that are out there of, you know, I mean, Kennedy and Reagan, and there's so many that we could talk to. But thank you so much for coming on the show. And I really appreciate um, not just your talk, but the fact that this is I I definitely feel like this is a very original topic. You know, these are stories that I I just I haven't heard before. Uh, You've heard about. People have heard about McKinley being assassinated, but they didn't know that whole story about their rush to, to try to get the, the photos of the event and, and all that kind of stuff. So just, uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to thank you for doing that research and doing just such an original subject and just sharing that with us.
2: Thank you. Thank you. That's really great to hear. I appreciate it because you all are the experts. So it's great that I can contribute something new.
0: No, no, you are the expert. That's why we had you here today. So thank you, Professor Kara Finnegan. Again, as we said earlier, the book is called Photographic Presidents, Making History from Daguerreotype to Digital. It's going to be released on May 18th of this year. So for our listeners, we encourage you to check out her book and learn more about the subject of presidents and their uneasy relationship with photographers. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. We are a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts. Check out evergreenpodcasts.com for more shows you might enjoy. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President.